What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 38 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Muanina people on whose lands this podcast was recorded and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. Today we're speaking with Peter Gray. Peter is a professor of psychology, has a regular column for Psychology Today, and is the author of the popular book, Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct of Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life, about which we'll be speaking today. In this episode, Peter and I delve into this book, a book that prompted me to think quite differently about several facets of education. We speak about how the experience of Peter's son in school forced Peter to seek alternative education routes and finally brought him to the idea of unschooling. We also speak about what Peter thinks we can learn from hunter-gatherer societies about the optimum way to educate young people, and we hear about the seven sins that Peter suggests conventional schools commit, and what Peter sees as a model for education worldwide. This is not a podcast for the faint-hearted dear listeners. Peter hurls a lot of critiques against conventional schooling, and some of them are pretty hard to hear. But I found that Peter's ideas, which are eloquently laid out in this book, Free to Learn, stretched my thinking about education in ways that I hadn't anticipated. I hope that you find it to be a stimulating conversation too. On another topic, listeners who are subscribed to the Ollie Lovell mailing list may have noticed it's been a little quiet over the last few months. This is because I've been working on a few other projects, including some longer form writing, which, if I'm lucky, I'll be able to tell you a little bit more about in the coming months. I've had a few people mention that they've been missing my regular emails, so I hope I can make up for it with some more content in other forms later on the year. So please stay tuned. Also, before we start, I'm excited to share that today's show is brought to you by Noda Lab. The podcasting company Noda Lab has been producing the Eat Willow podcast for the last few years, and I can't recommend their thorough and professional services highly enough. They offer a variety of services from high-quality audio production and copywriting to on-the-clock publishing services and dedicated content delivery strategies. I'm thrilled for the Eat Willow podcast to be supported by Noda Lab because I love podcasts, and high-quality audio is without a doubt an imperative ingredient to any podcast that's both stimulating and easy on the ears. Nodalab has helped bring the audio quality of the ERRR podcast to the next level. Head to nodalab.com for more information. And if you're keen to work with Nodalab, simply mention that you're an ERRR listener during sign-up in order to get a 20% discount off your first two months. If you're thinking about launching a podcast, growing your audience, or simply outsourcing some of your podcast workflows, Nodalab is the option for you. Noda Lab would love to hear from you, and I'd love to hear more education podcasts on the airwaves. I've also included a link to Noda Lab's website within the show notes. And on that note, if you'd like to consider having your organization brought to thousands of teachers around the globe by sponsoring the ERRR podcast, please feel free to contact me through ollilovell.com. But please keep in mind, I will only support organizations whose approaches I myself support, and I won't accept any sponsorship that requires me to modify in any way the fashion in which I conduct the ERRR interviews all the content included within. Keep your ears peeled during this episode for our featured not-for-profit this month, as well as what Patreon supporters will receive in relation to today's show. And with that, dear listeners, let's jump straight into ERRR episode 38 with Peter Gray. 
Peter Gray, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. So the first question we usually ask people, Peter, is if someone meets you, Peter, and someone new, and they say, hi, Peter, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, it probably depends on who's asking me and how much time I want to spend talking to them. So, uh, But for this purpose, let me say that I conduct research. I am, uh, if I were to call myself something, I'm an, a developmental evolutionary psychologist, which means that I'm interested in human nature, how our human nature came about by natural selection, and I'm particularly interested in the nature of children and how natural selection predisposed children to develop in certain ways. And so that's been the focus of my research and writing for many, many years. I haven't always been working on that topic, but I've my entire adult career has been as a as a professor, biological psychology that I used to do neuroscience and now I'm doing the kind of research that I'll be talking about today. Wonderful. Secondly, what do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? I guess the question is, what do you mean by school-based education? Let me answer that just a little bit different way. Yeah, start off, what do I think is education? What is, what is education? You know, education is a term that has kind of a halo around it. It's a term that, you know, we all believe in education, and I do too. And so I think the question to me that's interesting is, is what do we mean by education? What is education? When we say we want our children to be educated, what do we really want? <laughs> right? So here's what I want. To, to me, education is, is the sum of everything that a person learns that helps that person to live a satisfying and meaningful and moral life. That's what we all want for our children. <laughs> That's what we, we want. And so, and so I've defined education in a way that, yes, it's good. <laughs> it's not identical with learning. We can learn bad habits. We can learn nonsense. We can learn falsehoods and so on and so forth that don't help us in life. Mm -hmm. So I think of education as everything that you learn that helps you and that also helps you become a productive, valued, ethical member of the larger culture. That's what I think of as education. And so whether it's school-based or not school-based, that ought to be the purpose, in my opinion. I don't think that is the purpose of our schools. Mm, that's good. And in fact, I like your wording of the question more. And so in future, I might say, what do we believe, or what do you believe should be the purpose of the way we educate young people or something like that is, is probably a broader question. So that's helpful. You start your book with a very powerful line. I think the first words are something like, I hate you. And you start it with a scene placed in the principal's office of your son's school when your son was at age nine. And you talk about how this kind of experience, this meeting and the instances that led up to it, led to your work today. So I was wondering if you could kind of take us back to that scene for listeners and also talk about your transition and your son's transition out of formal schooling. Yes, well, this was many, many years ago. At that time, I was still doing neuroscience. I was very happily doing <laughs> research on the brains of rats and mice in my laboratory. But I had a son who was unhappy in school. He had gone to what was everybody regarded as, as a very good suburban school, but he was fighting with the whole system from kindergarten 
on. We would be, his mother and I would be regularly called in to conferences with the teachers. He he was very unhappy with school. Very early on, he started calling it prison. They're you know, sending me to prison. I have no choice here. They've, they make me do things that are just stupid, and I'm wasting my time, and I'm being treated in a very disrespectful manner. I'm not sure if he used exactly those words, but that was essentially what he was telling all the time. This is insulting to me. This is cruel to me. And I kept telling him, no, you just have to do this. Just suck it up. <laughs> you can do this. It's, it's not that hard for you. Just do it. Everybody does it. I did it. You can do it. But he was, uh, whereas I think some people would accept that and they'd go through it and they'd suck it up and do it. That was not my son's disposition. <laughs> if something seemed stupid to him, he said it was stupid. <laughs> And he would tell the teachers it was stupid. And when, when it came to them teaching him stuff and doing it in a particular way that seemed not the most efficient way or the most interesting way to do it, he would deliberately do it in a different way. <laughs> and this annoyed the teachers no end. You know, they would call us in. And so just I remember one conversation, maybe third grade, the teacher said, well, you know, he can't. You know, he's, he can't do math. And I said, what do you mean he can't do math? You gave him this national test that he scored at the 98th percentile. <laughs> I, what, what does it mean to say he can't do math? And then she said, well, he somehow gets the right answer, but he doesn't do it right. <laughs> so he was deliberately doing it in a different way. And so her view was, well, this will catch up to him someday, because if he doesn't do it right now, it, he'll be lost at some time in the future. Well, this was... This was the kind of thing he would do when, it, you know, he would. And, and as time went on, he would deliberately flout the rules more and more. And it finally came to the point where there was a meeting in the principal's office because my son was not following the rules. And I understand the school's point of view that, you know, you can't operate a school if the kids don't follow the rules. That's in, in a way what I mean by saying school is prison. Because you can't do what you want to do in school. You can't. You've got to do what you're told to do. Otherwise, school can't work. <laughs> so you've got to conform. And if you're not the kind of person who's willing to conform, you are disruptive to the whole school and you become a bad kid. <laughs> right? So he was identified as a bad kid. We were identified, I'm sure, by the teachers as bad parents because somehow it was our fault that he wasn't obeying <laughs> and following the rules despite the fact that I'd lecture him all the time about how he has to follow the rules. I didn't beat him, right? You know, <laughs> maybe I should have done that. But at any rate, that was what was happening. And so there was this big meeting in the principal's office. The, uh, the, the principal was there, the assistant principal, his classroom teacher, an assistant teacher, the school psychologist, some other psychologists who'd been called in from outside for this special occasion, and his mother and me. <laughs> And the first line of my book actually was even a more dramatic one than what you said. It was, go to hell. <laughs> okay, <got> So <laughs> we all said our piece to him, to little Scott, nine-year-old Scott. All of us big adults, we said our piece about uh, no uncertain terms. He's got to follow the rules of the school. That's the way it is. And we were going to give this unified front. And he looked at all of us and he said, go to hell. <laughs> so good. And... And I started to cry. His mother started to cry. We looked at one another, and we knew at that minute that he had won, <laughs> mm. and that he and that he was right, and that he was right, and that we were wrong 
to be against him, to take the side of the school instead of to be on his side. He needed us to be on his side. And But then what we were going to do, so we then we found this really remarkable alternative school, the Sudbury Valley School, and that was the change in my career. This was a school that my son thought, wow, this is the ideal kind of school. This is a place where I can really learn in my own ways and where people are interesting and people respect me and I have a voice in what the rules are here. And this is not a dictatorship. You know, this is a democracy. This is, this is what he thought, this is what he wanted school to be. But I, like most people in our culture, was skeptical because you know, this is so different from what everybody else does. Is he going to be able to go to college if he wants to go to college? Is he? Does everybody become an artist in this school? <laughs> and so that led me, that my own skepticism about it, my concern, led me to do a study of the graduates of the school. I first tried to get somebody who was for, for whom that would be closer to their own field to do it, and I couldn't find anybody willing to do it. So I thought, okay, I'll just do a study of the graduates. So the to find out, this was many years ago, this was way back about 1980, to do a study of the graduates of the school to find out how they're doing. They were already, the school was already old enough, yeah. I'd love to come back to the findings of the that research there, but I think you've painted a fantastic picture there, Peter, of your work in neuroscience, studying rats and things like that, and the way that your son, and I guess his will, his sense of will, really drove you to to explore alternate versions of education, which is what we're exploring today. Sorry to cut you off a little bit there, but I'm, I, I'm really keen to revisit the findings of that kind of study later on. Chapter two of your book, and, and really, I mean, before you called yourself an evolutionary developmental psychologist, and you talked about how your work focuses primarily on the ways in which natural selection predisposes us to learn in certain ways. And in line with this, the second chapter of your book was all about the playfield lives of hunter-gatherer children. So I was wondering if you could kind of paint a bit of a picture for listeners in the same way as you did for readers of your book about the lives as you see them of hunter-gatherer children and how these lives are aligned with the ways that students and young people naturally learn. Yeah, well, I got interested in hunter-gatherers quite a number of years ago. I had already done my study of Sudbury Valley. I already had developed some ideas about education. And as I said, I'm an evolutionary psychologist, so I'm interested in human nature. And the fact of the matter is that our human nature evolved in the context of hunter-gatherer culture. We were hunter-gatherers for hundreds of thousands of years. We've only had agriculture for 10,000 years. So at least 99% of our biological history, we were all hunter-gatherers. So it became interesting to me. The question became interesting to me. Well, how do hunter-gatherer children become educated? What's the relationship between adults and children in hunter-gatherer cultures? From a biological perspective, that's interesting. Is there any insights I can gain from looking at hunter-gatherer cultures that would help me understand why education as it occurs in Sudbury Valley, why self-directed education works so well? (laughs) Does it help me to understand that by knowing what are the conditions in which children's ways of learning evolved? So I got interested because of that, and also partly because one of my colleagues at Boston College, where I at that time was was a professor, I'm now retired from teaching, but I continue to do research through Boston College. One of my colleagues is a comparative psychologist named Gina Morelli, and she she had 
lived among and studied a group of hunter-gatherers in Africa, the Efe. And so I, would, I started off just kind of asking her, so what are, what are, what's child like, childhood like among the Efe? And she told me, well, you know what's interesting? They play all the time. <laughs> you know, they're, they're free to play all the time. They, they're, no particular work is expected of them. They're free to play. They're, and they have really loving relationships. They're never beaten. They're never scolded. They're really not even told what to do. And I began to wonder if she's telling me a story that's a little bit exaggerated or maybe seeing things through sort of rose-colored glasses. So I began curious. I wondered what other anthropologists would study other hunter-gatherer groups. So, you know, there's, there's, there's really no, as far as I can tell, no really pristine hunter-gatherer cultures today. But as, as recently as sort of the mid-20th century and even into about the 1980s, Anthropologists could trek out into, into remote areas of Africa and Asia and South America and various other places and locate people living in a fairly pristine hunter-gatherer way, very little affected by modern culture. And so there's maybe, maybe three dozen such cultures that have been studied. And so I started off by reading what I could, and there's remarkable similarity among these cultures. First of all, I should point out that what I'm talking about, when I talk about hunter-gatherers, are what might more specifically be called band hunter-gatherers. So these are people who live in small bands, and they are nomadic in the sense that they move around from place to place within a fairly large territory from campsite to campsite. They don't have permanent homes. They make, they create camp, basically campsites, huts, and stay there for a period of time. And then kind of when the game and vegetation is to some degree depleted there temporarily, they move on and then they, they move almost kind of in a circuit. And the bands are typically about 50 people per band, anywhere from 20 to maybe 50 or 60 people per band, counting children. And there are a lot of interesting things that are similar across all of these bands. First of all, they have they have relatively few children. They're like us in that respect, and not like farming communities. They're not. They have relatively few children. Babies spend, tend to be spread out by at least four or five years for any given mom, and usually more because unfortunately there's often death at birth, or or babies don't survive. But because of their way of life, they nurse the babies from until in many cultures until age four and when you are a woman who's quite lean and muscular because of your lifestyle and you're nursing that heavily you don't ovulate and as a consequence that's a sort of natural birth control so their babies are very precious just as they are in our culture you know not to say that babies aren't precious to everybody but if you've got 10 kids <laughs> you know you are a little bit less able to kind of pay attention to all of them than if you've got one or two kids right so the so in in some of these respects it's a little bit like us interestingly and they also as one anthropologist called them the hunter gatherers these band hunter gatherers he referred to them as the original leisure society or the original affluent society. Affluent not because they own so much, but because they need so little. And so their needs are met with relatively little work. They don't work hard. They don't have a word for work, <laughs> in fact. 
they they spend there. Are, there are people who have who've done research on how uh, how much time they spend at what we would call work, hunting and gathering and building their huts and building the fires, cooking the kinds of things that we might call work. And it averages to twenty hours a week. <laughs> it's like they're half time compared to our forty hour a week. And our forty hour a week that doesn't even count what we're doing at home, right? So even the adults have a lot of time to play, to chat, to visit relatives and other bands and so on and so forth. It's, you know, not that I would change places with being a hunter-gatherer. They've got diseases. They don't have the, they don't have modern medicine. They don't have, they're subject to starvation at certain times and so on and so forth. There's a lot of downside. I don't want to glorify it. But these are characteristics of hunter-gatherers that really defy the view that the hunter-gatherer life was such a hard life. It was not such a hard life. And in fact, governments in these places would always be trying to get hunter-gatherers to take up farming because they realized that, you know, of course, they wanted to exploit the forest and the hunter-gatherers' territory, and you've got to get them to stop hunting and gathering to do that, or else you're just going to destroy them. But they don't want to take up farming. And when you ask them why, they say, because that's work. <laughs> you know, that's, you're right. So, so at any rate, the kids in these hunter-gatherer cultures, this was the interesting thing to me when I began surveying anthropologists who lived in various of these cultures. What I found in every single one of them is that they basically told me that the kids are free to play and explore all day long, that from age four on through on through mid-teenage years, basically what we think of as the school years. Kids are off, usually away from adults, playing and exploring and pursuing their own interests. And in the process of doing that, they are engaging in all kinds of activities that are resulting in their learning the basic skills of their culture. They're playing at hunting and gathering, and they're playing at building huts, they're playing at making dugout canoes, they're playing at the musical instruments and the art of their culture and the dances of their culture and so on. Not because anybody's telling them to do it, not because anybody's even encouraging them to do it. Nobody's measuring them. Nobody's doing anything like what we think of as school. And yet the kids are learning what they need to learn through their own play and exploration. So this this gave me some insight. Well, here, you know, look for if it's true that in all of these different band hunter-gatherer cultures of modern times, whether they're in deserts or in jungles, whether they're in Africa or Asia, South America, these similarities are occurring in all of these different band hunter-gatherer cultures. That means there's something stable about this. And although we can't go back in time and say that this is what was true for all hunter-gatherer cultures in the past, it's a pretty good inference that if it occurs in all the hunter-gatherer cultures, all the band hunter-gatherer cultures of the present, it probably occurred in at least a large number, if not all of the band hunter-gatherer cultures of the past. So, so this was the condition. Now, I should add that there is another group of people that are technically hunter-gatherers, and these are often called collector societies. These are people like the Northwest Indians in North America who lived on rich fishing grounds. And they were a little bit more like farming cultures. They had they defended their fishing cultures. So they were territorial and they were, became somewhat warlike to defend the territories. They developed hierarchical societies, unlike hunter-gatherers, which who are very egalitarian, don't have chiefs, don't have, don't have a structure of authority. So Probably in human history, we had two ways, at least two ways of living. We had 
hunter-gatherers who were moving around, like band hunter-gatherers, we probably had collector societies living in that other way also. But what's interesting is even in the collector societies, they don't have anything like schools. Children are still, there's a lot of differences, but children are still learning in their own, in their own natural ways. We've got another person in the ERRR right now. This person is Beth, and Beth's got a question. Before you ask your question, Beth, could you give us a bit of a background about what brought you to today's interview and why you have a particular interest in this topic? Thanks, Ollie. Yeah, I am you know, already familiar with Peter Gray's work, and I'm quite interested in the idea of democratic schooling. Yeah, it was interesting to hear Peter's discussion about his own son at school because that was really my experience at school as well. I really didn't like it. So I could never imagine myself becoming a teacher, but it was when I learned about democratic schools that I thought, well, maybe this could be something I could actually do. And after my teacher training, which was just kind of mainstream teacher training, I visited the US and Europe and visited a number of schools, some democratic free schools, but also different alternative schools like Montessori. I've worked in a Montessori school and also Reggio Emilia program. And at the moment, I'm working in a school re-engagement program for 10 to 12-year-olds in a very, I guess, you know, highly disadvantaged suburb where, you know, a lot of the kids have had really challenging experiences and that's impacted their ability to be in school and to conform to what's expected of them in that context. So they get referred to us usually because they're causing a lot of problems for teachers and or they're just not going to school so that's kind of the group of kids that I'm particularly interested in and you know that's something that I've really wondered I've tried to reconcile you know what we do with these students and how we work with them in comparison to what I know about democratic schooling so my question was that your argument about you know the ideal way to raise children the model that you propose does that argument depend on this evolutionary theory about this is how humans have operated for tens of thousands of years, I guess, because what we can see today and what you've hinted at is there's, you know, a diversity of human cultures and, you know, why is the way that things have been done in the past an argument for the way they should be done now? Yeah, no, I, I definitely would not say that that's my argument for why it should be done now. As I said, I got interested in hunter-gatherer cultures after I had already been writing about democratic schooling and and this way of parenting and so on and so forth, I got interested in hunter-gatherer cultures as a way of helping me understand why this mode of education works so well. I had already determined that it works so well. (laughs) It works really well in our culture. It solves a lot of problems. It's less expensive than what we're doing. The kids are happier. They're learning more. They're going on to happier adult lives, as far as I can tell. And so then I got I got interested sort of as a biologist and biopsychologist, what is it, what are what what is it about human nature that makes it, this such a natural way for children to learn? And that led me to get interested in hunter-gatherer cultures and to look at hunter-gatherer cultures. So no, absolutely not. It's not and in fact, you know, as you as you may know, there are evolutionary psychologists who understand how hunter-gatherers lived and how hunter-gatherers grew up, and they'll say, well. You know, but that mode of education would never work in our culture. <laughs> and the reason it wouldn't work in our culture is because our culture is so different. So my view is, well, wait a minute. Yes, it is true. Our culture is so different. But yet, isn't it interesting that 
this research that I've done shows, whoa, it does work in our culture. <laughs> Children learn reading, writing, arithmetic. They learn it all so much easier than they do in school. They develop passions. They go on to good careers. So to me, it's fascinating that this mode of, of education that came about during our long evolutionary period works even today in as different a culture as we have today. My argument for why we should do it this way is not because that's the way it was done in the past. My basic argument was why we should do it this way is because this is the moral way to do it. It is unethical to do what we're doing to children in school. And if we have a choice between an ethical way of raising children without coercion, without putting them in prison-like structures, without making them do things that they don't want to do, without dulling their interest in learning, without making them cynical about democracy because they're going to school in the most non-democratic environment we can create. If we don't have to do that, we can, and they will still grow up okay if we do it this other way, why not? <laughs> That's my argument. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. There's a lot of places we could go here, but maybe it's a good time to pick up on what kind of where you ended speaking there. You talked about what could be classified as some of what you term the sins of modern education. And you list in chapter four of your book, the seven sins of forced or coercive education, as you term it. And you kind of hinted at them there. Did you want to take two or three minutes to kind of expand upon what you see as the most egregious sins of forced education? Obviously, the most egregious sin is the denial of liberty to human beings. We regard liberty as a basic human right. That's part of what we believe. And we believe that you should not take, we as a society, you know, it's part of the American Constitution. I don't know if it's part of the Australian Constitution, but part of the American Constitution is that you don't deprive somebody of their liberty unless you can prove that they're a danger to society or a danger to themselves. And yet we routinely deprive children of their liberty. We force them to go to school, whether they want to go to or not. In school, we micromanage them. We force them to do this. We force them to do that. That is unethical unless we can prove it's necessary. Now, there are some people who believe it's necessary, and they, they believe it's necessary because children are incompetent to learn what they need to learn unless we do this to them. So that's the argument, and that would be a legitimate argument if it were necessary. <laughs> but what I'm arguing is I have seen that it's not necessary, and many others have seen that it's not necessary. So that's the first, that's the biggest sin. But there are many other things that result from that. And, and on that point, you tell some interesting stories in the book. You talk about different naval commanders that historically, you know, ruled ships or sorry, should I say captain ships of men four times their age at the age of 12. When I was in Japan recently, I heard the story of samurais, you know, running armies at the age of 14. And in the book also, and, and very entertainingly, you share the story of your son who at the age of 13 organized his own trip to London, saved for it himself, went on the plane himself, spent a number of weeks there at the age of 13, just cruising around himself. And you use these as kind of points, or I guess, back up to suggest that children are more capable than we give them credit for. That's right. Yeah, fantastic point. What were you going on to then? What they're especially capable of is 
learning what they need to know. <laughs> you know, they they are they are born to educate themselves. They are curious. They're they're so curious. You know, unless you lock them in a closet, you can't stop them from learning. They're always trying to learn. They're always trying to understand. They're listening to what people are saying. They're watching what people are doing. They're picking up all the information that they can. They are playful and they play at all the, just like hunter-gatherer cultures, play at the kinds of skills that are important for them to learn. In our culture, when children have lots of opportunity to play, they play at the skills that are important to learn in our culture. And in their play, they especially want to play with other kids that they're learning social skills in play. They're playing in risky ways and they're learning courage by doing that. You know, they're playing, every time they play, they're figuring, play is always creative. They're always being creative. They're learning how to make things. They're learning how to create their own activities. They're learning how to solve their own problems. Children come into the world biologically designed to educate themselves. We cannot get into a child's, any child's mind. Even if we had a one-to-one teacher-student ratio, we could not get into any child's mind and know what that child is ready and wants to learn right now. But that child knows. And if we allow that child to learn what they want to learn, when they want to learn it, they will learn what they need to know. They will all learn to read as long as they're growing up in an environment in which reading occurs. There has never been a student who's gone through Sudbury Valley without learning how to read, even though reading is not taught there even though they learn it at various different ages. You can't help but learn to read if you're growing up in an environment where people are reading. Everybody's going to learn to use numbers to the degree that you need to use numbers in our culture. And if people go on into careers where they need fancier kinds of math, they will learn it. They'll learn it, and they'll learn it very readily, and they'll learn it specifically in what they, the way they need it. So the idea that we have to force children to learn by coercing them, by making everybody learn to read at the same age, by making everybody learn algebra or trigonometry, even though 99% of them are never going to use that in their life and 99% of them never really understood it when they were learning it in any way, and the teachers didn't understand it who were teaching it. We just put them through those hoops. <laughs> we put them through those hoops, and we th- and we call that education. And one of the things that children learn is they learn to be cynical about all of this. Even the best students say, I'm good at going through the hoops. I'm good at, at cramming for the tests and then emptying my mind out after the test is over. So we generate cynicism. We, we waste children's time. You know, there's no end to to the problems with our system of education. And the reason we have this system, I mean, in my book, I talk about why the system was first developed, had nothing to do with what we think of as education today. The purpose of the original schools that are of the type that we have today was to drive the sinfulness out of children, to teach them to obey, to obey unquestionably. This was a time when when we believed that everybody was born in original sin and you had to drive the sinfulness out of children and schools were to serve that purpose, to teach obedience and also to teach biblical doctrine and to teach children to read in in a situation where people were coming from illiterate communities where you you won't learn how to read if you're growing up in illiterate communities. So schools did serve that purpose, but if you read the 
writings of the people who developed those schools, the primary purpose was indoctrination and obedience training. Schools were designed for that purpose, and we still, our schools today are still based on that model. They work in the same way. Most people who go into teaching don't say they're going into teaching to indoctrinate children or to drive the willfulness out of them, but the structure of school is such that that is in effect what happens. All right. Well, I guess I guess maybe something that a lot of people would be thinking at this point is, yes, this may be the case in some schools, but there are also many conventional schools, which are truly a joyous place for people. You know, there's probably some principals listening now who've gone to a lot of trouble to create lots of diverse programs for the students. There's probably a lot of teachers who have dedicated their lives to try to create, you know, nurturing educational environments for their students and feel that they've done that very well. So is it a bit of a generalization to suggest that all schools are coercive and, and all forced education commits these seven sins? Well, so we could, you know, within the, so let's talk, I, I'm, I'm primarily talking about public schools, but we could also be talking about most private schools. So, of course, there's always been progressive movements in education. Progressive schools like Montessori schools, Waldorf schools, in the, you know, what are sometimes called constructionist model schools based on sort of Piagetian theory and so on. These have always come and gone within the public school system. They tend to last in private schools, but they're very expensive. And that's one of the reasons public schools haven't adopted them in a consistent way. And these certainly are easier on kids, but still the fundamental difference between what I would call traditional schooling or, or conventional schooling and self-directed education is this. Whether you are a Montessori school or a Waldorf school or any kind of progressive school or whether you're a traditional direct instruction kind of school, you've got a curriculum. You've got expectations that children are supposed to learn certain things at certain times. That's not the way children learn. <laughs> children learn different things. Children have different interests. They learn in different ways and at different times. And if you have a school where you're trying to allow children to be free, but still you have the expectation that everybody's supposed to be able to read by the time they're, let's say, seven. Well, what are you going to do about those kids who aren't reading? <laughs> what are you going to do? You are judged as a bad teacher if those kids can't read by the time they're age seven. Well, the truth of the matter is, when children are learning on their own, a lot of them don't read until they're eight, until older, older than seven. Some of them, many of them learn well before seven. Some of them learn at seven. But there are some kids who don't learn until much later than that. They're perfectly fine as long as they're not going to a school that requires them to do that. So what do you do? You, can't, you have to force them to learn. As long as you've got a curriculum, You've got forced instruction because you've got to make them learn that curriculum or you as the teacher are going to be judged negatively. And I don't know any schools in the public school system in the United States that have given up assess testing children and holding them to some kind of a curriculum. I don't even, and, and the private schools that we think of as progressive schools also do that. That's the fundamental distinction. Sudbury Valley does not do that. There's no curriculum. There's no testing. Unschoolers don't do that. There's no curriculum. There's no testing. 
testing would spoil it. If you, as soon as you say everybody's supposed to be able to know this or that by a certain age, then you no longer have self-directed education. Now you have coercion. I think it would just be interesting. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but in Australia, we have a national curriculum. And even if you're homeschooling your children, you have to be able to show evidence that they are learning things from the curriculum at the appropriate time. So that's something that I've always been really envious of, you know, other countries, the UK, the US are about because, you know, it seems like if you do withdraw your child from school or there are schools that can set up these right. um, programs, whereas it's, yeah, nearly impossible here. That's right. So even so, even unschooling would really be not possible, not legal at least. Not in, legal, uh, yeah. In Australia, and that's true in many other countries also. And we are fortunate in the United States in that respect. That I think in every state, as far as I can tell, in every state, unschooling works. And there are some states where you have to give some kind of report to the school district, but it's just the matter of the parent giving some kind of a statement of what the child's been doing, what the child seems to have been learning over <laughs> over the past number of months. Mm. Yeah, so my question there, and we won't spend much more time on it, was basically, do all schools, all compulsory education-based schools, commit these seven sins? And And maybe the best thing for me to do now is just to read them out, and I can let listeners kind of reflect on whether they think that the school that they're in if they're in a school, does actually commit these sins. So the first one, I think we probably all do, which is denial of liberty without just cause and due process. I mean, some people might debate whether there's just cause or not, as you mentioned, but there's definitely a limited process in terms of the, the choice of the child. Sin two, interference with the development of personal responsibility and self-direction. People can reflect on that. Sin three, undermining of intrinsic motivation to learn, that is turning learning into work. Sin four, judging students in ways that foster shame, hubris, cynicism, and cheating. Sin five, interference with the development of cooperation and promotion of bullying. Sin six, inhibition of critical thinking. And sin seven, reduction in diversity of skills and knowledge. So I really want to get into the practicalities of Sudbury Valley. And then, you know, we've only got about 40 minutes left. So I want to jump into that. But I'll just leave them for listeners to think about and reflect upon and think about whether these are things that they've seen in their own school, or maybe whether they think their school has found ways around some of these sins that you've outlined. I'm happy to announce it again this month, and for the second time, we have a featured not-for-profit. I've been incredibly inspired by the work of today's featured not-for-profit, YouthWorks, and I attended their 10-year anniversary celebration a few months ago and was immensely impressed by the incredible films that the young people who attend YouthWorks program have produced. With a small addition that YouthWorks is particularly interested in attracting young women to their fantastic programs, I now leave you in the capable hands of YouthWorks founder, John Stanley, to tell you more about this wonderful organisation. Hello, ERRR listeners. I'm John Staley, and I'm the manager and founder of the youth media social enterprise, YouthWorks. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to highlight our work as the featured non-profit for this episode. When YouthWorks was established over 10 years ago, the primary intention was to transform the lives of young people who are homeless at risk of homelessness through engagement with creative media. At this end, over the past decade, we've built a social enterprise with three primary elements. The heart of what we do at YouthWorks is provide creatively based training in film and radio for the most vulnerable young people in our community. The head of what we do is run a film production business that employs graduates of the training in key roles, where there's the opportunity to turn creative skills into commercial skills. 
The spirit of what we do is to support the development of underrepresented voices through the production of original content. All of this is fueled by the underlying idea that creativity is to the spirit, what food and shelter is to the body. As much as we need a roof overhead and food on the table, we need to be creatively and meaningfully engaged in purposeful activity. Sometimes that's the thing that can give you the reason to get up and face the day. Our task and our challenge, and I guess our purpose at YouthWorks, is to get young people to tap into their creative core, take creative risks, and to begin to get a sense of the vastness of their possibility. Behind all of the profound belief in the importance of voice and representation and a commitment to the idea that the best person to tell your story is you, the best person to represent and speak on behalf of your culture is you. We believe deeply and at our core that everyone deserves a voice, everyone deserves an audience, and I do not mean that in a glib artificial way. I mean, as a society, we should be committed to seeking to give everyone the tools to be articulate with them in their own experience and provide the appropriate platforms to do this. Ten years and many films, shows and stories down the track, we're continually refining and building our model. YouthWorks has now achieved over 180 accredited training outcomes, employed more than 50 highly at-risk young people, and produced more than 500 commissioned films for over 100 organisations. If you want to learn more about YouthWorks, check out our website, www.youthworks.org.au. To get involved with YouthWorks, use us to make your next film, and in so doing, help support a creative employment pathway for marginalised young people. Donate money. Any donation will help us have greater impact for more young people. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, so following criticisms like this, I guess the natural question we want to ask Peter is, what's the alternative? And you've already alluded to the fact that you sent your own son to Sudbury Valley and you thought Sudbury Valley provided fantastic education for him. And it's also done so for many other students. And the Sudbury Valley model more generally has a lot to to give and a, a lot of promise for the education of students. So did you want to just give us a bit of an overview, paint a bit of a picture for what Sudbury Valley is and how it operates as a school or an educational institution? Right. So first I might just point out the, the, the way of talking about education. Nobody would say Sudbury Valley gives an education, right? Sudbury Valley doesn't give an education. The, the philosophy of the school and the philosophy of self-directed education is that we don't give an education. Children take an education. Children educate themselves. What the adults do is provide the opportunity for children to educate themselves. So, you know, children depend upon adults in many ways. We have to, you know, we have to provide nurturing for children. We have to provide them with shelter and so on and so forth. And as part of that, we, we have an obligation as families when we can do it and as a society for families who can't do it to provide the opportunities that children need to educate themselves. So what is it that children need to educate themselves? So one of the things they need is they need to be exposed. They need to be in an environment where the, the, the basic skills of the culture are represented. So we live in a, in a literate and numerate culture. And if you're growing up in a home in our culture that's not literate or not numerate, you're not going to at home acquire the, you're not going to learn how to read at home, or you're not going to become a good reader. You're not going to learn how to use numbers and understand really what numbers are for and so on. 
So what Sudbury Valley does is it provides an environment where that occurs. There's, you know, clearly there, there are books all over the place. There are lots of people who read. There are adults who read. There are kids who read. There are people who read to one another just because reading is fun. You see reading going on all the time. So even if you're coming from a home where there's no books and nobody reads, if you go to Sudbury Valley, you're now in an environment where reading is valued. And you see there's, oh, yeah, I want to join that club of readers, right? And you're playing games that involve reading with other kids. You're playing games that involve numbers. You're keeping scores. You're measuring things. You're cutting recipes in half in the kitchen. You're doing all kinds of things that involve numbers, right? And so you're picking up that. So this is an environment in which in which the these kinds of things that we all worry that our are our children are going to learn these things where these kinds of things are represented and where in fact children inevitably learn them not all at the same age as i said but inevitably learn them so children need also other children to interact with this is something that squares also with my observations in hunter gatherer cultures Children learn primarily from other children, not so much from adults. This is true in hunter-gatherer cultures. This is true at Sudbury Valley. This was true in my own memory of my own childhood, which in some sense in, in the 1950s in the Midwest America was a little bit more like a hunter-gatherer culture than our culture today. Because although we had school, we kids were out freely playing and exploring in age-mixed groups with other kids far more hours in the year than we were at school. <laughs> school wasn't as much big a deal then as it is today. There were fewer hours of it, fewer weeks of it. We didn't have homework or to speak of, certainly not in elementary school. So we were out playing with other kids and there's so much, this is something that I've written a lot about, is what children learn in playing with other kids, especially in age-mixed groups. So Sudbury Valley provides that opportunity to play. Whenever younger children are playing with older children, it's always a learning experience for the younger children because the older children are boosting them up into a higher level of activity. So just to take just to stick with reading as an example, you could have kids who don't know how to read, but they're playing games that involve reading with kids who do. In the process, the kids who know how to read are pointing out the words to them and indirectly teaching them to read as a result of that. But whatever they're playing, the, you know, the, young, the older and more experienced kids are boosting the younger kids up, whether it's physically and intellectually up to a higher level. And meanwhile, the older kids are learning how to be caretakers, leaders, how to help other people, gaining a sense of their own maturity, their own ability to, to be helpful to another person. This is something that you can't learn in age-segregated classroom. You can't, you can't learn that. Everybody's at the same stage, first of all, you don't really have any opportunity to help anyway. It's cheating if you help. At Sudbury Valley, older kids are always helping younger kids. They're learning, they're, they're learning a kind of nurturing ability. Older kids are also, just as younger kids are inspired by older kids to engage in more sophisticated, complex activities that they would otherwise engage in, older kids are inspired by younger kids to engage in more energetic, creative, kinds of activities. You know, you don't very often in our culture, at least in the U.S., see teenagers playing with clay or drawing with crayons or building with Legos and so on. But at Sudbury Valley, you do because the younger kids kind of are doing these things and it inspires the older kids to do it. And so it keeps the older kids more creative than they otherwise might be. 
So what I'm trying to do is to give a sense of what the school provides that enables education. It provides contact with a lot of other kids. It provides the ability to play with the tools of the culture. So you learn how to use those tools, whether they're computers or cooking materials, cooking equipment or woodworking equipment or sporting equipment. All those things are available and children can use them and become good at them. So those are the, and the other thing that the school provides, which I think is really, really important, is a community. So we are not, and this does come probably mostly from my observations of hunter-gatherer cultures, but it's not a unique observation. Many people have said this. We are, we are not designed to grow up in nuclear families. We are designed to grow up in a community of a large number of caring people, adults and other children. The isolated nuclear family kind of came about with agriculture and then it kind of stuck with us. <laughs> but the children need to get out of the nuclear family. They need to connect with other people. They need to learn from more people than just their parents. And by providing a school like Sudbury Valley, you're providing them the opportunity to get to know very well a number of adults, the staff members there, to get to know well older kids and younger kids and to be able to learn from all of those people. So how does it work? I mean, you've, you've talked about, I mean, I have a relatively good picture in my mind from reading your book, but for listeners, if they were to walk into Sudbury Valley right now, what would they see? You know, are there classes? Are there kids running classes for each other? Are there even teachers there? You haven't really mentioned anything about adults at all so far. Are there rules? Can the kids just do whatever they want? What's actually happening in Sudbury Valley? Yeah, great question. So if you walked on campus, you know, any time of day that school is in session and all you knew is that it was a school, you would probably assume it must be recess time. <laughs> you wouldn't see anything that really looks like, or, or very little, that looks at all like school. It's possible, depending on when you went, that you would find some kind of a little seminar going on because sometimes a group of kids will get together and they'll say, well, we'd like to have a seminar on this or that, and they'll talk a staff member into leading it, but it the initiative has to come from the kids. But that's relatively uncommon. You would find lots of kids outdoors, even in the winter, you'd find them outdoors. You'd find them skating on the pond or you'd find them fishing in the pond. You'd find kids climbing on rocks. You'd find kids climbing trees. You'd find kids engaged in various pickup sports of their own soccer games that they're creating themselves or baseball or whatever. They're playing basketball on the basketball court. You'd find somebody, if it's uh, nice weather, strumming a guitar and maybe a few other kids listening to them or strumming along with them outside. And even you might find somebody leaning against a rock, reading a book. <laughs> Inside, you'd find a lot of kids on computers these days. No surprise. A computer is the primary tool of, the, of our culture. So no surprise that kids are attracted to computers and spend a lot of time on computers. You'd find kids reading. You'd find a lot of kids, especially teenagers, hanging out, talking to one another. And if you were to eavesdrop, you would get some sense of what they're talking about. And you would begin to think that maybe something kind of profound is going on here as they're talking. Maybe this isn't just wasted time. So these are the kinds of things you'd see. You, you might not even run into a staff member for a while. <laughs> you'd even see four-year-olds out and there's no staff member watching them. There's a pond there. There's there's 10 acres of land. There's a woods nearby. There's a road that goes by that has cars on it. 
and the four-year-olds aren't even being watched by adults. This is uh, in our society today. This really seems strange. When the school first started in 1968, it didn't seem strange. Back in 1968, we understood that four-year-olds have common sense by and large. They can be out. They don't have to be watched every minute. But now we think that even ten-year-olds need to be watched. <laughs> you know, we so we've changed. We've we've developed a, this view that kids are incompetent to take care of themselves. The school doesn't accept children under four because I, the, the experience of the people who started the school, and actually there's good psychological research supporting this, that it's really around age four that children have internalized language to the degree that they have what we could call common sense. They can hold rules in their mind. They can follow rules. They can, they're not going to do crazy things, whereas a three-year-old might. <laughs> so that's, well, that's the way the school works. Now, in terms of, you did ask about rules, so let me say just a word about the rules. The rules are, this is not, so sometimes people think, well, this would just be chaos, you know, this is, but this is a school that is run by rule of law, and the rules are made democratically by the school meeting, so the school meeting meets once a week, and all the rules are made by the school meeting, so there are, there are a lot of rules at this point, after 50 years of existence of the school, but the basic rules have to do with things like no littering. You know, if you're litter, you have to pick it up. You know, no defacing property. Of course, no breaking any of state laws. You can't drink on campus. You can't use illegal drugs on campus. You can't do these or that. Since some period of time, uh, the not-too-distant past, there's no smoking on campus. And then there's this, what's called the personal rights rule, which we could call, you could think of as an anti-bullying rule which is basically the rule that if you are doing something to somebody else, whatever it is, and they tell you to stop, I don't like that, stop, and you don't stop, then you violated their personal rights, and you could be brought up before that. So this is a very effective rule for preventing what we might call bullying. And bullying is always, you know, has to be judged in the eyes of the, per of the person being so bully. The same thing that bothers one person doesn't bother another person. So if it bothers you what I'm doing to you, and you say, this is really bothering me, stop it. And I really mean it. I'm, not, I'm serious about it. And I don't stop. Then you could bring me up to the judicial committee. Now, the judicial committee tries the cases of somebody who's violated a rule. And it's a, it worked kind of like the jury system in the larger society in America. So when your name is called to serve on the judicial committee, which is what the jury is called, you have to serve. And you serve for a period of time, actually for two or three weeks. And it's always constructed in such a way that there's always a couple of teenagers, at least one middle-sized kid and one little kid on it. And usually, though, there's a couple of little kids and a couple of middle-sized kids and one staff member on it. And this is the, you know, so if I were to bring you up, and we were to go, or you were to bring me up, and we were to go in front of the judicial committee, and there would be a kind of hearing about it. We would each testify. We'd each claim our case. There would be possibly witnesses called if we were if we were disputing the facts. And then some judgment would be made. So in the case of if I were violating your personal rights, and you know, hopefully we would just agree, okay, I'm not going to do that again. But suppose we just agree, I'm not going to do that again, and then I do do it again. <laughs> And then the next time, there may be some consequence, like maybe the, the judicial committee would decide, well, you know, you said you were going to stop and you didn't stop. You're still doing it. 
So now the consequence of that is that you have to stay away from Ollie for the next two weeks. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, you have to, if he comes into the room you're in, you have to go to another room. Maybe that would be the judgment that would be made. I'm kind of making that one up. But usually the, if we want to call this punishment or consequence, whatever we want to call it, it's something that sort of fits the crime. Every attempt is always made to resolve it without that, but if it can't be resolved without that, that's the way it works out. I do want to come back to that judicial committee, but before we do that, just on the academic side of things, you, you said that everyone learns to read anyway, you said everyone learns to write anyway, and things like that. If there's no testing or anything like that, how do you know that the school's kind of furnishing students with the academic skills that they need to succeed in society? Well, I know because they are succeeding in society. So that's the, <laughs> the way I know. I mean, I did a study of the graduates of the school. Those who want to, so in terms of reading, the, you know, the only basis I have is asking them if they can read. I don't, I don't doubt that they can read. And there were, for, well, I'll give you an example in the case of reading. There were, in my study of the graduates of the school, which was done long ago, two of the graduates told me independently of one another that they had come to the school at age 15, each of them, unable to read, <laughs> that they had been passed along, they'd been given diagnosis of dyslexia, which gave them an excuse for not being able to read, and passed along in public school. They both told me that they learned to read within a few months of being at the school. And I asked them, well, how, could you, how is it you could learn to read there when you hadn't learned to read before? And both of them said, and these were separate interviews, these were kids who were at the school at different times, so I don't even know if they knew one another. Both of them said in different words, but fundamentally what they were saying is, for the first time in my life, nobody cared if I could read. And that's what made it easy for me to read. <laughs> the pressure was off. <laughs> if I said, I can't read, they'd say, oh, that's cool, you must have a great memory. You know, <laughs> you know that's, <laughs> and so the pressure was off, but you can't live in our society without knowing there's some value in reading. You don't have to tell somebody. You don't have to pressure somebody to read. What you need to do is take the pressure off. And the pressure was off. You know, what happens in the typical school and what I think creates what we call dyslexia is that some people are slower to read than others. And if you're slow to read, it's embarrassing. And then you're reading in front of other people. You're trying to read in front of other people. You can't do it. Everybody else can do it. You freeze up. When the mind is frozen, it doesn't learn very well. <laughs> and this whole realm of reading becomes scary. And so for somebody who's in that situation, the first thing they have to do is say, you know, it really is okay for me not to be able to read. <laughs> it really is okay. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. And I don't have to be scared of this. And, and then it becomes easier to learn how to read. That's true with everything. That's true with everything else. It's true with mathematics. You know, I used to teach statistics at Boston College to kids that are supposed to be, young people who are supposed to be pretty smart. I mean, it takes a lot of, takes high SAT and so on to get into Boston College. And, and yet what I found was that something like 90% of them admitted to having a math phobia. They, and I could see why. <laughs> they had memorized the procedures for doing mathematics. They had no understanding at all of why those procedures were. So it was they recognized this is a kind of this is a kind of fake understanding of math. And that and I don't want to really delve into this. I'm a you know they they're afraid of judgment about mathematics. 
Well, that doesn't occur at Sudbury Valley because nobody's ever judging them about mathematics. And they just learn the math that they need to learn. Those who want to go on to an elite college, they study the math they need to do the SAT test, and they learn it very, very quickly. The SAT in the United States is a is a scholastic aptitude test, it used to be called, and it's, it includes a math component, and elite colleges require you to take that test as part of the admission procedure. Well, here are kids who've never studied math at all. Of course, they've picked up the math that most of us use in everyday life, and you know they understand fractions, they know percentages, and so on, because you can't help but grow up in an environment like this without learning those things. They just are part of everyday conversation and everyday a- activities. But then you need to learn the specific kinds of math that is being tested on the SAT test, stuff that never occurs in real life, much of it which never occurs in real life. Well, they decide, well, I want to go to college, and so I'm going to learn this stuff. And they learn it very, very quickly because they're not afraid of it. They learn mostly on their own, and sometimes they will ask for help from a staff member. How many kids at Sudbury Valley? It, it varies. There, for various reasons, there are sort of cycles of boom and decline of, uh, of students. The maximum at one point a few years ago was about 200, and then we entered the economic recession here in the U.S. of 2008, and it dropped considerably, and then it rose again, and recently it just dropped again. But it's anywhere between about 120 and about 200 in recent over the last 20 or 25 years. Okay. All right. Well, maybe we could pick up with some of your questions, Beth, in terms of is Sudbury Valley for everyone? Yes. So you mentioned about the drop-in numbers of students after the recession. So I guess I was wondering what impact the fees have on who attends this school and how much diversity is there? Yeah, I think that that's a good question. So Sudbury Valley is an inexpensive school to operate. It operates on less than half the budget, the per pupil budget of the local public schools. So Sudbury Valley, if Sudbury Valley School were publicly supported, taxpayers would save money and everybody could go there, right? And it's very inexpensive compared to other private schools, much less than a Montessori school, for example, or a Waldorf school would be much less. But it still costs something. And and that's a deterrent, certainly for, for some families. What is the fee? I haven't kept up with it right now, but I think it may be up to something like $7,000 or $8,000 a year, something like $8,000 a year maybe now. I haven't looked at it for the last while. I could be off. But the public schools, the per pupil cost is something like $17,000 in this local area at this point. For, And I think Sudbury Valley is about half that. <laughs> and some of the other Sudbury model schools, let me say, provide Sudbury Valley, it doesn't, but some of the other schools, which are also becoming quite large, like the Circle School in uh, Cleveland or the the Philly Free School in Philadelphia, they provide a sliding scale, so they charge somewhat more than Sudbury Valley would if you can pay more, but they charge less if you can't pay that, all the way down to nothing for kids who can't pay anything. They're deliberately trying to bring in a more diverse group of students and students who can't afford it. So there are schools trying to do that. There's another school that's not exactly a Sudbury school, but it is in some ways similar called Natural Creativity. Also happens to be in Philadelphia. 
that is deliberately located in a poverty area and and is specifically oriented towards bringing in a diverse group, including kids who have basically been cast outs from the public school system, who have been failing repeatedly, the kind of kid who whose parents are in jail, who are not eating a square meal a day. This school is also providing meals for some of the kids. So there's a real attempt to bring in a more diverse group. It is true that Sudbury Valley, partly because it's located in a kind of middle-class suburb, is primarily middle-class people, although it's not entirely that by any means. In terms of whether the school, I think I am delighted to see more people from poverty entering Sudbury-type schools, entering this kind of school, because I think that's the group that especially needs it. That's the group that especially profits from it. The What we have seen over the years is, of course, that the public schools are totally failing those people. <laughs> They're retunely failing them. That We have what's called the school-to-prison pipeline. <laughs> You know, they fail in school, they get detentions in school, they be, they become pegged as bad people in school, and then they go on from school to prison. And this idea that the public school system is serving that need, that this is the democratizing influence, has proven to be totally, totally false. And every attempt that has been made in recent years to try to close that so-called education gap between the rich and the poor has failed and has increased the gap rather than decreased the gap. It turns out that spending more money on schools doesn't decrease the gap. It certainly turns out that more testing, what we call in America, no child left behind, with more testing, you're going to make sure that everybody keeps up. You're going to fail the teachers. You're going to penalize the teachers if the kids aren't all passing these tests and so on and so forth. As that comes on, the gap increases. To me, no surprise, because the more pressure you put on kids, the more you increase that gap. When there's high pressure, those who already know how to do it well do even better than they did before. But those who don't know how to do it well do worse than they did before because they freeze up or they say, this is just not my thing. I'm going to be doing something else. I can't do this. I can't do this the way they're asking me to do it. I can't do this the way other people are doing it. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be the class clown or I'm going to be the delinquent or I'm going to skip school or I'm going to whatever it is. That's the way you react to it. So that's so clearly school. So what, what would reduce the gap? So I ask, the way I look at it, what is it, what is it that's creating the gap in the first place? It's not schools. Schools can't equalize the gap. No matter even the, even when kids are going to the exact same school, you still that gap is just as big, just as big mm-hmm. in the exact same school as when they're in different schools. For a long time, people like to say, "Oh, the poor kids are going to worse schools. The schools are all crumbling down." Turns out that doesn't matter one bit. <laughs> I shouldn't say it doesn't matter one bit. It's terrible the schools are crumbling down and so on and so forth. People deserve to be in clean and nice places. But in terms of the, in terms of the academic learning, it doesn't matter. <laughs> that gap is just as big when they're in fancy, nice schools as when they're in crumbly schools. It's just as big when they're all in the same school. There's data on this. I've summarized some of it. So what does help? So the one thing we know from studies in conventional schools, and in one of my blog posts, I summarize this, 
is that in conventional schools, there's one factor that does seem to decrease the gap. And that factor is, is referred to in the literature as the climate of the school, which really means, is the school a friendly place? <laughs> is it a friendly place to everybody? When you walk into that school, does the teacher greet you, no matter who you are, greet you and say hello and care who you are, ask about your family, you know, act like you belong there. That's, that decreases the gap, even in conventional schools, to the degree that that atmosphere persists in the school, that decreases the gap. That, that helps everybody, but it helps the kids who are from poor families more than the others, because they're the ones who feel the most like they're strangers in the school. And you need to do something more to help them feel like this is a this is a place where you could feel comfortable, not uncomfortable. So that's part of it. So a Sudbury Model School, you know, everybody's welcome. Everybody's part of the community. Everybody's cared for. They're, everybody's the staff are like your uncles and aunts. The other kids are like your cousins. You get to care about one another. You go to the school and you feel like this is this is home. This is a second home for me. So the other thing is that why is it that the middle-class kids come to school already knowing how to read very often, or if they don't know how to read, they learn how to read pretty quickly? Why is it that they learn numbers so quickly? It's not because of what's going on in school. It's because of what's going on at home. And it's not that the parents are teaching this stuff. It's just that this is all part of the home. The parents read books themselves so the kids see that books are important. The parents read books to the kids. There are books all over the place. The kids are growing up feeling, well, books, this is part of the world. This is part of what I need to learn. Numbers are involved. The parents are talking politics and discussing philosophy maybe or maybe not, but they're, but they're using more standard English. They're using bigger words. They're so on and so forth. They're they're part of what we think of as the mainstream culture, the middle-class culture, and the kids are growing up in that. If you're not growing up in that, how are you going to acquire this middle-class culture? How are you going to acquire a love of reading and so on and so forth? So you go to a school that's an, inter that's an integrated school. You wouldn't want to have a school where everybody's from a home that nobody reads in. But say you brought into Sudbury Valley, as sometimes happens, or into these schools that I'm talking about that are making a concerted effort to have a diverse. So now you're coming to a school where there's kids, who, there are kids who are reading and there are kids who are playing games that involve numbers and there are kids who are discussing their views about Trump, you know, and there are kids who are, are talking about, uh, talking to, about what they've read and there are kids, and, and there are kids who, who have parents who are doctors or lawyers or business people, and suddenly this becomes part of your world. You know, oh, wow, there's such a thing as that. <laughs> and I know somebody whose parent does that, and maybe the staff member was, uh, before becoming a staff member, was a scientist. Oh, I know somebody who knows what it's like to be a scientist. Most of the staff members have gone to college. So, oh, wow, these are like my uncles and aunts, and they've been to college. <laughs> they can tell me about college. College now is a real thing. So this is what the school provides. It provides really a rich educational environment for everybody who goes there. And that's why I think it's especially important for kids who don't have a rich educational environment at home. Peter, just briefly then, kind of what you talked about was about giving the opportunity of kind of disadvantaged kids to come into an environment in which there are lots of possibly we could say more advantaged people people who have more cultural 
and social capital, and therefore to be able to benefit from that from that environment of increased social capital and cultural capital. Does that provide limits to the ability of this kind of model to scale? For example, if you have a country in which you know 50% or greater than 50% of the population is not in a level of high affluence or things like that, which tends to be the case in capitalistic societies where we have concentrations of wealth and power, is it actually impossible to create a whole ream of these kinds of schools simply because you don't have the distribution of people where the majority are affluent and high cultural capital. And therefore, if we created all these schools, it would by definition be primarily attended by people without these kind of skills and these advantages. Well, I think that the the way that I, so we're not going to suddenly change, we're not going to suddenly flip over the schools. That's just not going to (laughs) happen. So this, this is going to happen gradually. And it's already starting to happen. So for example, there's a growing movement. We, we don't have, at least in the United States, this might be different if you're talking about a third world country, but we don't in the United States have huge concentrations of people who are illiterate. <laughs> we have people who are in big poverty. It's not, it's not huge numbers of people. This is a significant number of people. We have people in poverty. But we don't have big blocks of people where everybody's in poverty. <laughs> we just don't have that. And so, you know, you might have, you might have, for example, in in uh, New York City, you might have a housing development where most people are pretty poor. Uh, that doesn't mean they're illiterate. That doesn't mean, you know, but that doesn't mean that they're in desperate poverty. But where most people are pretty poor, and where some people are very poor. You have there some people who are homeless, a very small number of people who are homeless proportionate-wise. And then you have the, you know, the next block over, you've got people who are quite wealthy. You know? So I, at least in the United States, I don't see that physical geographic distribution as, as a problem. We're seeing in Philadelphia how it's working out. The school that I mentioned in Philadelphia is attracting people from some people who are relatively wealthy, most people who are kind of in the middle, and some people who are very poor. And it's attracting them, and it's working out. And so I I don't see a particular problem. In terms of scale, you know, it's no more difficult to have lots and lots of little schools than it is to have a fewer number of huge schools. In some ways, little schools are much easier to manage. They're self-managed and so on and so forth. And especially these kinds of schools are are self-managed by definition. <laughs> and so you don't need a big bureaucratic structure to operate them. And you know they arise, they're operated by the people who are involved with them. There also, I might say, in the United States, there's a growing movement of African-Americans homeschooling. This is becoming, there's been quite a bit written about this recently, and many of them unschooling. There are a couple of them who've become involved with the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, which I'm involved in. They see it as a liberation movement, a double liberation movement, a liberation movement racially and a liberation movement in terms of child liberation, raising free people, raising people in freedom to be free. So I think this is very promising. We don't have enough examples that I can say scientifically, that I can say, all right, we've done research and such a, you know, we've shown that that no matter what your income is, you're equally likely to go on and do well after going to a Sudbury model school. Although the Circle School does have some preliminary data, they actually did a study looking at what their graduates have done 
and uh, correlating it with income and finding that regardless of income, they seem to be going off to college at about the same numbers and so on and so forth. So beginning to get a little bit of data, but it's still a small amount of data. It wouldn't be something that probably a major journal would be ready to publish. Mm. Well, yeah, I'm really glad we're having this discussion because as I mentioned, you know, kids from these neighborhoods are the ones that I'm most interested in working with and supporting. And, you know, one of the tragedies I think here and also, you know, as far as I'm aware in the US and the UK, the schools that these kids go to tend to be a lot more punitive and, you know, teacher-centered in terms of the learning style. Like they have to, you know, listen to a lot more lectures. They're expected to learn, you know, in a way which is more traditional. And you have the middle class schools and the wealthier schools where kids go and they're, you know, they get to do a lot more self-directed learning. And I guess, you know, the response to that has often been for, you know, educators to advocate that, you know, there needs to be, you know, more restorative, transformative justice in these schools that, you know, these kids should have the opportunity to do more of that kind of, you know, what's considered student-centred learning. However, in the kind of examples that I've, you know, been involved in or seen, you know, community schools that are trying to turn around this situation for their community, they tend to be quite structured in terms of the way that they run a school day. They have lessons, they expect the students to participate in the lessons. And it's all about, I guess, yeah, that idea of trying to give them opportunities and expose them to things that they wouldn't have in their homes. And the vision that you talk about is so compelling, you know, well, if you brought all these different kids from different backgrounds together, then they'd all have the chance to kind of learn from each other and it wouldn't be so segregated. But I guess the reality is, you know, that Ollie was hinting at is that there are plenty of suburbs that are a long way away from the affluent parts of town. Like, you know, I've worked in these inner city schools where they're next to a housing estate and none of the rich people around send their kids to that school. So there is even that segregation in the inner city, but, you know, where I am now, it's in the outer suburbs. There's, you know, very few people around who, yeah, I guess have that experience with the culture of the elite and the only real way for students to kind of, you know, get that opportunity or learn those things is if, you know, it's kind of brought in artificially, you know, with teachers or other adults or I'm just wondering if you have any insight into how that can be addressed you know how you can have free schools for these kids who are surrounded by you know a lot of really hard circumstances yeah yeah it's hard for me to know if that to what degree that's necessarily a problem i i think that you know when i think of neighborhoods here in the united states whether we're thinking about cities or anywhere else and and most kids are being bussed anyway (laughs) you know to some distance it doesn't seem to me that difficult to to bring people together from different schools. And if you had a kind of school choice thing, I, we already kind of have that in the United States in many cases. There are a lot of kids who are bussed out of their neighborhood to go to schools in other neighborhoods. At Sudbury Valley, there are kids who come from Sudbury Valley from Boston, which is 30 miles away. <laughs> there are kids who come from some distance around. There are kids who come from all over eastern Massachusetts. So you have to have some kind of transportation for them to get there. But I don't see the geographic segregation of people as a complete barrier to being able to have 
to to overcome that segregation within the schools. Um, you know, we have in the United States we have laws that have prevent that have tried to work against. They haven't they haven't been terribly successful, I have to admit, to try to work against the segregation of schools. The reason they haven't been successful is the white people take their kids out of the public schools and put them in private yeah. schools. But what we're finding here, interestingly, with the Sudbury schools, at least the kinds of white people who send their kids to Sudbury schools value the diversity within the school. So they're not taking their kids out. They're wanting that diversity. <laughs> that doesn't mean to say that all the white people are going to, you know, I mean, none of this is going to happen quickly. <laughs> it's going to be a, it's going to be a gradual change. It's going to be kind of organic. It's not going to be a, the result of any kind of official policy. It'll be the result of more and more people, some rich, some poor, some black, some white, deciding that for the benefit of their children, they're going to take their child out of the public school, which is hurting their children, and put them into this other kind of setting that is more friendly and where their children won't suffer in the immediate sense that they are in public school and where there's growing evidence that they'll do well in life as a result of being there. I guess, yeah, one of my other questions was around the kind of justice system they have at Sudbury Valley. And I know that's a model that's been replicated, you know, in the US all around the world, but there are other models of democratic preschools. And for me personally, I found that something to be, it didn't really gel with me because it's a punitive system and it kind of recruits children to be, you know, the judge and jury of their peers. And the language of that, the process has a lot of issues and I think it would be particularly triggering for children who have already been exposed to the criminal justice system through their families. So I'm wondering if that's something that, you know, you see as a problem or, you know, there are other approaches, I guess, right. to, to dealing with students breaking school rules. You know, you could have a more restorative approach, you know, that's focused on repairing relationships, problem solving, rather than like sentencing people. Right. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question and a valid question. And I've heard this argument many times and, and I've visited schools that have this other, other kinds of systems. I think it's good to have, you know, I think each school should develop its own system. Is, but the, I have observed at Sudbury Valley enough and at other schools, Sudbury schools enough to know that this is all done very gently. <laughs> it's all very sweet. It is all... The kids love one another. <laughs> it's not punitive justice. It is like, I mean, here's a typical kind of thing. So so, the, so a four-year-old played with his toys and didn't put them away. All right. So somebody comes over and says, hey, you've got to put the toys away. And so the kid reluctantly puts the toys away. And then the next time the kid doesn't put the toys away and somebody comes over, it might be another kid, it might be a staff member. Hey, you didn't put your toys away. You're, there's a rule. You have to put your toys away. The kid continues not to put the toys away. And so now, so what do you do? You've, you've tried. So now you say, okay, next time, if you don't put your toys away, next time you play with them, I'm going to bring you up to the judicial committee. So a four-year-old comes to the judicial committee. Well, first of all, there's, other, there's another four-year-old there. Everybody's his friend. Everybody's talking to me. Hey, you know, why don't you do it? Typically, the, the adult, the staff member, tends, oftentimes tends to be the softy who will say, well, you know, he's only four. <laughs> you know, so let's give him a break. But then there'll be another kid who's six years old who'll say, well, when I was four, I could put my toys away, and so on and so forth. So there's this discussion about it. And then finally there says, all right, so we'll give you one more chance. 
And next time it happens, if you don't put your toys away next time, then you are not allowed to play with the toys for one day, <laughs> you know, and that's the punishment, right? So, this, you know, this is not the schools that I've been in that don't do this. And they all, the people who don't do it really think that it works, except that let me, I visited a school in Europe even trying, I was on a sort of tour of Europe. I'm not trying to remember which school, but it was a school that had this system. And so the one of the staff members was explaining the wonders of their system and how they don't use the formal processes of Sudbury Valley. They arrive at consensus rather than vote because they don't believe in voting because that means somebody gets voted down. And they have their judicial system. It's a matter of sort of talking things out and so on and so forth. So I said, well, give me. So then at some point in this same discussion, somebody said, oh, well, we have a rule against using screens in school except on Friday afternoon. And so my eyebrows went up. <laughs> and I said, all right, so how is this rule created, <laughs> right? Was this something that every student, you're telling me this is consensus, every student in the school wanted this rule? Are you telling me that? Could you clarify the rule, Peter? You're not allowed to use what? The rule was no, you're not allowed to use your iPhone, you're not allowed to do, play computer games except at certain time. I think it was like Friday. There's certain times when you could, but most of the time you couldn't. So it was a little incredible to me to believe that every student in that school, by consensus, agreed to that. Mm -hmm. So I said, did every student agree that? And I looked over, and there were a couple of teenagers rolling their eyes. <laughs> they were rolling their eyes. And they said, oh, no, this was the teachers. <laughs> and they convinced us that we should do this because the parents wanted it and so on and so forth. And then he said, but, you know, it's not a big problem because it's not really enforced, except it's selectively enforced. <laughs> and then I said, who selectively enforces it? Oh, the staff, right? So mm -hmm. what happens when you try to say, we're not going to vote, we're going to do consensus, we're not going to have trials? My observation is what happens is that even though there's a pretense that this isn't happening, the adults are taking control. The only way you can prevent the adults from taking control is to have a voting process and a procedure in which the children have real power. And there's no way that the children ha can have real power if you don't have real democracy. Mm -hmm. I go with Winston Churchill, who said, democracy is a terrible system, but all the other systems are worse. <laughs> Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm very yeah, curious about the different options for processes. And I think, I mean, yeah, what you said about majority voting versus consensus, I, I do really believe that it mostly comes down to the, I guess, ethos or the, I guess, what, what the teachers believe about the way that they exert powers over students, because either system can be manipulated. But if we go back to the idea about punitive justice versus some alternative, yeah, it's it's a good thing to look out for because I guess power can be exerted in ways which aren't as transparent and there is something very transparent about the judicial process. And, yeah, I, I don't have any other examples to give, but I guess I just hope that there would be, you know, ways that children could be trained or, you know, learn about mediation and other kind of skills that could solve problems as no, opposed right. to 
punishment. Let me yeah. say that mediation is always the first step. Every mm-hmm. every time, so it's always the judicial committee is always a mediator. It, it's only when mediation fails that mm-hmm. there is that there are consequences. Uh, the yeah. first step always is mediation, and usually mediation works. But in those yeah. cases that it doesn't, what do you do? In those cases that it doesn't, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And so I want to distinguish between the kind of punitive system that occurs in our typical schools and the kind of punitive, if we call it punitive system, that occurs in Sudbury Valley. In the typical schools, the principal enforce, makes the rule and enforces the rule. It does, and the rules are not even clear. It's not even clear what the rules are. The principal is a dictator. <laughs> the principal can simply declare that what you have done is wrong <laughs> and can throw you out of school for it. There's no due process. There's no, you have no voice in that. You don't have the right to defend yourself. Compare that to Sudbury Valley. Number one, you had a vote in the rule. The rules are made by all of the students together. Every, every student had a vote on that rule about no littering. Every student had a vote on the personal rights rule. So even if you voted against it, you knew that at least you had an argument and it was your peers and your friends, all these people voted, let's have this rule. This is the rule. So you take the rule seriously because you voted on it. This is not some arbitrary dictator coming down on you. And then when you are going to trial, it's if you call it a trial, you're going to the judicial committee, it's it's your peers, it's your friends, it's people who know you, it's people who love you, it's people who care about you. It's not some it's not some principal or teacher or somebody who doesn't know who you are and who's just primarily interested in enforcing discipline. These are people who, who care about you. So that it's just not like what some people might imagine it to be. I don't I can't say for sure that there aren't some cases where somebody, especially a little kid, might feel a little bit anxious about all of this. But I don't think anybody's ever traumatized by it. I don't think anybody's ever so the, the serious cases are the cases it's typically a teenager who's come to the school who thinks that they can drink on campus, who thinks that they can use, you know, use uh, hard drugs on campus, that they can do things that are law-breaking that would absolutely destroy the school if they were to do it. The school would be closed down by the authorities if that occurred at Sudbury Valley. And so those are the cases that get real, that, that where there's real serious. So you, you first try to, you know, first it's peer pressure. The kids say, no, you can't do that here. You know, maybe you could do that in the public school and get away with it, but you cannot do that here. We're not going to let you do that here because that could destroy the school. Well, that peer pressure doesn't work. Somebody brings them up to the judicial committee. And then there's a warning and a suspension. You've you've broken a state law in this school. This could destroy the school. There's a suspension. The parents have to get involved in the suspension because they have to know why the kid isn't welcome at school. Then the kid when is welcome back when the kid has thought it over and says in a genuine way, I'm, I'm ready now to follow the rules of the school, the kid comes back and if he doesn't follow the rules, then then there's there may be another expansion or there may be at some point a motion to expel this kid. And those are very difficult meetings. And that goes to the whole school meeting. But what I want to point out is it's not a staff member, an arbitrary staff member making that decision. It is the whole school that's involved in making that decision. 
there are friends of that kid there who's defending him, giving him another chance, so on and so forth. Uh, there are kids, you know, and everybody's involved in that discussion. And think of the moral learning that's going on. It's not done primarily for moral learning. Let me give you another example. This is one I wrote about in one of my blog posts. So one of the times I was visiting the school meeting, it had been past the school meeting, there were a new teenager had come to school wearing a black jacket with a swastika painted on. Well, this was now a big issue. There was no rule say you can't wear a swastika. Now, you know very well, if a kid went to a public school wearing a swastika, that kid would be thrown out immediately, just thrown out. The lesson that kid would learn is that the bigger bully wins, right? <laughs> so, so what happens at Sudbury Valley? There's nobody there who has the authority to tell the kid you can't wear a swastika. There's nobody there who's, who has the authority to throw the kid out. The kid hasn't broken any rule. So now somebody comes to the school meeting proposing a rule that you can't wear a swastika in this school. You can't display a swastika as part of your clothing because that's a symbol of hate and we don't tolerate that in school. So somebody proposed that rule. The result of that was a remarkable discussion in, in which it was mostly, I have to admit, it was mostly the older students and the staff who were engaged in the discussion, but the younger kids were there eating it, listening to it, absorbing it. There was somebody, there was a, a young woman, a, a teenage girl who was arguing, well, this is a slippery slope. If we ban the swastika, where, where do we end in preventing free speech? <laughs> do we also then ban the hammer and sickle? <laughs> because that, and maybe we ban the American flag because that stands for the decimation of the Native Americans and for slavery in some people's minds, right? Where do we stop? Where this, believe me, this was a discussion worthy of the Supreme Court of the United States about free speech versus offensive speech. In the end, the idea that you can ban the swastika won, but it was only after a lot of discussion. Well, contrast that with what might have happened if you didn't have that kind of a formal procedure where people, you had to have a rule, you had to vote on it, you had to get everybody's view on it, you had to, you, you had to follow Robert's rules of order to have a real discussion of this, as opposed to somebody just in a single sweeping way saying, well, we all agree we can't have a swastika here. <laughs> I was really impressed with that. And every, in fact, almost every time I visited the school, either at a school meeting or a judicial committee meeting, I have been amazingly impressed at the level and sophistication of the discussion that occurs there and of the education that's a consequence of that. Even though this is not done, the school staff will say, no, we don't do this for education. We do this because this is the only fair way to run a school. Yeah, well, that was certainly my experience, you know, in general, observing school meetings, even, you know, judicial committees uh -huh. in action. But, yeah, it's amazing how much empathy they learn and display in these contexts. But, you know, right. obviously there were some e exceptions to that, you know, abuses of power and all sorts of things. But by and large, yeah, I, I agree that it's infinitely better than what we currently do. Dear listeners, I was extremely excited by the number of people who, following last month's episode with John Hollingsworth, decided to sign up to support the Eat Fuller podcast as patrons. 
The number of patrons actually doubled following my discussion with John, and many patrons have shared that they thoroughly appreciated the summary of Hollingsworth and Yabara's explicit direct instruction that I produced for them. This month, I've compiled a summary of Peter's book, including some of my favourite quotes and narratives contained therein, as well as my reflections on what I took out of Peter's books and what has caused me to think about more since reading. If you'd like to have access to this summary of Free to Learn, as well as to the summary that I produced last month based upon my reading of explicit direct instruction, jump onto patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show. The average donation from ERRR loyal listeners is $5 per month. I'm immensely grateful to those who have already decided to become patrons, and it gave me a real boost of both energy and enthusiasm following last episode when I saw just how many people value the ERRR podcast enough to support its production each month. Dear patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. Now, back to my discussion with Peter Gray. I've got a question here from someone from Twitter. It's at Inclusive Plan is the, um, their Twitter handle. So they're saying, I'm an inclusive educator, so I'd like to know how this philosophy fits with students with disabilities who often require a lot of teacher direction. And if not suitable for this group, it raises a lot of other questions. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I wish there were more research on who who is and who is not able to make use of the Sudbury Valley environment effectively promote their own education. I, I do realize that there are some who can't, but we have uh, right now, at least in the United States, we have an enormous number of people who are being diagnosed with disabilities. <laughs> you know, Basically, if you don't fit into the school, if, you don't, if you're not fitting into the school and you're not learning as you're supposed to in the school or behaving as you're supposed to in the school, you've got some kind of a disability. You get labeled 20% of boys in, a, in the United States have been diagnosed with ADHD, 20% at some point in their school career, one out of five. To say that one out of five boys has a mental disorder, <laughs> that's crazy. But that means that there's one out of five boys who don't fit into the school environment. because And, and, the, and part of the reason for that is the school environment is becoming more and more restrictive and it's harder. It's a smaller number of girls, but it's a certain number of girls too. But it's especially hard, on average, for boys to adapt to the sedentary existence of school. And boys tend to be more impulsive than girls and so on, so they get this diagnosis. Well, one thing that I am absolutely sure of is people with ADHD have no problem at Sudbury Valley. That's been well established. (laughs) I did a little survey of that, and the school reports that, and I've heard from parent after parent about how they took their kid out of school because they didn't want to give the kid these powerful drugs and the school was insisting that they give them to them, they go to Sudbury Valley and they're fine. They, they maybe get in trouble with the judicial committee more than other kids do, but they come around. They don't have any trouble focusing on the things that they choose to focus on. And because it's self-directed, they learn, they, edu- they become educated. So ADHD is no problem. That's the biggest diagnostic. And so there's a growing number of people in the United States being diagnosed with autism or being on the autism spectrum or Asperger's. And there's some debate, is this a, somehow something in the drinking water or you know, what's causing all this Asperger's? There's a huge increase in, in it, apparently. And apparently it's not just a matter of diagnosis. Apparently it really is a big increase in it, and who knows why. 
my observation, I can't, there, no, no systematic study has been done, but my observation, visiting a number of schools and being told oh, by a parent, oh, my kid has, uh, is, on the, is on the spectrum and so on. My observation is that if you're not too far out on that spectrum, you do fine. I was watching a couple of kids, a couple of teenage boys at one school diagnosed with autism, and I could see they, 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 the diagnosis was probably correct. But they were, they were, both of them were real computer nerds, and they were good on computers. And because they were good on computers, they were attracting other kids who were coming around to watch them on the computer and learn from them on the computer. And socialization was occurring. The big problem with autism is socialization. You don't, it's hard to socialize. It's one of the big, it's one of the big problems. So these kids, because they could pursue their own interests and because they were valued for who they were, were incidentally making friends and talking about what they were doing on the computer as a result of it. So it seemed to be to be successful. On the other hand, I know Sudbury Valley a number of years ago, there was a girl there who was far out on the autism spectrum and her parents wanted her to be there. The staff was skeptical, but they accepted it on a trial basis. And that did not work out well because that girl really was socially frozen. She really needed the kind of special help that people who are far enough out need, and the school can't provide that. They would have to be a different kind of system to provide that because the school doesn't watch people, the school doesn't, you know, you would, you would have to have two schools or a school within the school to do that. So it was terrible. It was tragic. They had to, this was the only case I've heard of where they had to expel a student even though the student hadn't broken any rules because they couldn't talk the parents into taking her out. And they knew that this was not good for her. They knew that this girl needed to be someplace else. Dyslexia is no problem at all. Uh, as I've talked, uh, there's never been a student who hasn't learned how to read at Sudbury Valley School, even though they're not getting any special training in reading. I think that there probably are a few cases of people who have real brain disorder that makes it perhaps impossible for them to learn how to read, but they are so few and far between. The great bulk of people who get a diagnosis of dyslexia don't have that kind of a problem. They can learn how to read if the pressure is taken off and you let them read in their own ways and at their own time. One of the things that I have learned from observing at Sudbury Valley School and talk, and even more so from talking to staff members at, such, at Sudbury Valley and other schools is that when children have a serious problem, they tend, the first thing they do is work on that problem. It's like, you know, those two kids that I mentioned with dyslexia mm -hmm. are a good example. That was the first thing they, they wanted to do was to learn how to read. Kids who come with a social problem, the first thing they want to do is to learn how to interact with other people, <laughs> to learn how to go overcome their social inhibitions and shyness. So I think that a lot of what we call learning disabilities is this inability to learn within the standard school system. <laughs> it doesn't mean you can't learn. <laughs> it just means that you are not cut out for that kind of a cookie cutter. <laughs> you, you don't fit that cookie cutter. You have to be, you have to work out your own ways of learning. I think, I think there's no expert in the world who is better at knowing how a child needs to learn than that child is. <laughs> That's the real lesson of, of the real point about self-directed education. Children know what their needs are. 
children know how they're best to learn. They just naturally gravitate to learning in the way that is best for them. And we need to get adults out of their faces. Instead of more special educators in their faces all the time, we need to get out of their faces and let them learn. Now, that doesn't apply in every case. That doesn't apply to somebody who is extremely autistic. It doesn't apply to somebody with Down syndrome. It doesn't apply to some to people who clearly are not, they have a kind of biological damage that damages the self-directed education system in such a way that they really need extra help from adult experts. So the next question, Peter, first off, I'm a little bit worried when I speak to anyone and they say, you know, my school is a perfect school. I wouldn't worry about it. Not that you've said that, but I'm worried when I meet anyone who kind of says that anything is perfect. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to suggest, is there anything you'd change about Sudbury Valley? So the answer to that is Sudbury Valley is constantly changing. (laughs) It's changing all the time. Everybody wants change at the school. So change, so somebody says, we need a staff member in this area. We don't have a staff member in this area. So the the school is built to change. The school is built to be modifiable over time. Children, students have a role. They can hire and fire staff, right? You don't like the staff member. You can fire them. Children, so there's, there's, there's probably a staff member or two. I haven't been around there that much who I wouldn't like. I might vote for firing them. I might vote. I, I think maybe we could get a better staff member, right? I can't say that. I haven't been around there that much. I don't like this rule that we've got. Let's talk about it. Let's change this rule. In other words, the school is changing all the time. It's a little bit like asking the question, what would you change about the United States of America, right? There's a lot of things I don't like about the United States of America, but that doesn't mean I don't like the basic constitution of the United States of America. That doesn't mean I would change that. That doesn't mean that I don't like the division of powers. That means that, look, we're not, we haven't worked it out well. You know, we haven't worked it out. We've, we've, we're still struggling. We're still working on it. We're still, we're still, we're constantly trying to improve but we've got the structure that allows us to improve. And rather than a dictator, we've got a democracy. The democracy could be better. The democracy is better at a Sudbury school because it's smaller and you can make it better than in a whole country. But I wouldn't change the democratic structure of the school. And the democratic structure is what defines the school. So, and the democratic structure is a mechanism of change and it's constantly changing. So that's really my answer to that question. Mm. Next question is kind of a practical one. It comes from George Zonios, who I had on the podcast, I think three episodes now, and he spoke about space repetition software. And George asked, as someone who totally supports student-directed learning, teaching in schools is a bad fit. And George has been and is still a teacher in schools. So George asked, What's the ideal job or the ideal way that someone could spend their energy to help to lead the change? Well, there's sort of two different ways of answering that question. The two ways are really represented by the two different nonprofit organizations that I'm involved with. So I'm involved with the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. We are a movement to help people leave schools. And one of the things we're, we're trying to make it more and more possible for people, regardless of their income, to be in a set play for self-directed education. One way we're working on this is what we call the library initiative. We're working with libraries for them to become, in the United States at least, every community has a library. 
libraries want to take on more functions. Libraries could become spaces for self-directed education. A lot of libraries now have maker baker spaces in them. A lot of libraries, some libraries have free play. Some libraries let homeschoolers hang around. So that's one of the one of the ways we are pushing the movement of self-directed education through the Alliance for Self-Directed mm-hmm. Education. Making making libraries, libraries are already publicly supported. You don't have to pay tuition to go to a library, right? And so that's a big push that we're going, and we're having some success already. We got a grant for helping libraries move in this direction and so on. Now, the other organization that I'm involved in is called Let Grow, and it, the president of that organization is Lenore Skenazy, who wrote a wonderful book called Free Range Kids. She and I in that organization are working with regular schools, with public schools. Our goal there is not to get kids out of school. That's the other organization I'm involved in. Our goal there is to make life more pleasant within the school for the kids and to free them up for self-directed education to some degree in the school and after school. So just to give you, so what's happening in the United States is over the, over the last few decades, school has become more and more oppressive. What used to be the fun things in school have been taken away. Art, music has been taken away. Kids are no longer creating plays and no longer decorating their classrooms. They're studying for tests all the time. They're being given tests all the time. The fun things, the creative things have been taken away. So we're working with schools to get them to step back to the way schools used to be (laughs) when there was much more opportunity for creativity. Recesses have been taken away in many schools. Even little kids often don't have recess anymore. I mean, this this is child abuse. And I will say, when I speak to public school people, I will use that term, this is child abuse. And they understand it. They begin to understand it. And so a lot of schools are bringing recess back. They're increasing recess. What I would love to see schools do is open up this whole school for free play between the hours of when school day ends and when parents are home from work. That period of time, which in the U.S. is typically from about 3 o'clock until about 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the afternoon, that, the whole school could just be opened up. Age mix, all the kids, they could, use, they could use the art supplies, they could use the computers, they could use the outdoor playground, they could use the gymnasium. If there's a swimming pool, they could use that just for play, just free play. It wouldn't be very expensive to do. So, so far, for various bureaucratic reasons, no schools have done this. But some schools are taking the first steps. So some schools are having what they call play club, and they have an hour of absolute free play where all the kids are together. Typically, this is an elementary school, so they're kids from kindergarten through fifth grade, and it's working out really well. The kids are getting a better attitude about school. The, The teachers are getting a better attitude about the kids because they see how competent they are. They're just letting the kids play. In one whole set of schools on Long Island, New York, the principal, the superintendent of schools had read my book and he got involved, read my book, Free to Learn, got involved with Let Row, asked for us for help. And so we helped advise him about a lot of things he's doing and has done in these schools. Take away homework from the elementary schools, give increased recess, add play club. And what we suggested to him is that since they had to have teachers observing, for some bureaucratic or union reason, teachers had to be the people observing to make sure it was safe, 
I suggested that he tell the teachers that when they're observing, they're not teachers. They're lifeguards on a beach. They're just there to save a life. They're not there to tell people what to do. They're not there to cheer people up if they're not happy. They're not there to solve little squabbles. They're not there in case of a bruised knee. They're there if there's a if a life is in danger. If they see blood, they can move. But other than that, <laughs> they should hold back. And they really are doing it. They really are doing it. I've observed. And the kids are proving themselves to be amazingly capable of managing themselves. And the staff members are, be, are learning that the kids are capable of managing themselves. The older kids help the younger kids. It's just really quite wonderful to watch. And so a new attitude is being developed, and a new attitude about children. And so I think that this can help reverse what's happening, reverse the terrible trend that's happening, and bring back more trust of kids, bring back more opportunities for freedom and free play self-direction within the public school system. So now this is beginning to catch on. It's still a very small movement. It's still a very tiny proportion of schools doing it. But those schools that have done it are raving about it. And even the parents who initially were leery about it, they're talking about it on their Facebook pages and other schools now want to are talking about it. They're getting in touch with Let Grow. So I, I really think that the the way to work within schools is to buck the trend of continuing to increase the testing, increasing the drill, decrease all of that, give the kids more time to play, have a different attitude in the classroom. Generally speaking, teachers are very nice people. Generally speaking, teachers love kids. Generally speaking, teachers have a pretty good sense of what kids want and what kids need. And if teachers have a little bit more freedom in the classroom, the classroom would be a lot better. But teachers today in America don't have freedom in the classroom. I hear from teacher after teacher, I'm no more free than the kids. I've got to do exact, I've got to follow this curriculum or I'll be fired. I hear, I just published a blog post in which I quoted kindergarten teachers. Take a look at this post on my Psychology Today blog entitled something like, Kindergarten teachers are quitting, and here's why. I've received comments and letter emails from many kindergarten teachers who are explaining why they're quitting because they can't stand being part of a system that is harming little children, and they can see the harm. And the teachers who are quitting are the te- are the best teachers. They're the ones who have long taught. They're the ones who know how to bring play into the classroom. They're the ones who know that little kids learn a lot in play, and not they're not being allowed to let their kids play. They're talking about administrators coming in and taking all the toys out of the classroom, coming in when there's play going on and telling them, you're not allowed to play. You have to be studying reading now. And so this, what's happening, I don't know if it's happening at all in Australia. It's It's beginning to happen in a lot of other countries, including the UK. But I think that, you know, and of course it happens in East Asia where the school, where the schools are horrid. But it's happening. We have been modeling East Asia in the United States. We have been creating drones in schools. And the result is the result is catastrophic. And this is what I try to point out to public school teachers. And it's beginning to have some effect, <laughs> not just from me, but from other people too, pointing it out. Mm. I feel like you've already addressed this, but but did you want to add anything in terms of closing questions? I'll combine the two last ones, which were, what are you particularly excited about at the moment? Which I feel like you may have just shared your answer to that. 
And do you have any calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? But is there anything you'd like to add in relation to those two questions, Peter? Yeah, I, I guess I have talked about what I'm excited about. You know, I'm very excited about this library project through the Alliance for Self-Directed. I'm excited about many of the things we're doing through the Alliance. I would encourage people to take a look at the website for the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. And if you are sympathetic with the movement to join and donate to it, I But I'm also very excited about the beginning of these changes that are occurring in the public schools and to feel like like we can have some influence there. People are starting to recognize. I think it's because it's gone so far that it is obvious that we are already, you know, the kindergarten, it used to be that it wasn't until middle school that kids started saying, I hate school. Now we're seeing it in kindergartners. Kindergartners are saying, I hate school. Kindergartners are having panic attacks about going to school. Kindergartners are crying because they feel so stressed out by school. This, you know, at least this is beginning to get people's attention. And and it's also beginning to get the attention. The, the suicide rate among school-aged children, especially teenagers, mm-hmm. keeps going up, keeps going up. A study by the American Psychological Association revealed that teenagers are the most stressed out people in America, and 83% of them attribute their stress to school. This should tell us something. These kind of data have to get out there. Unfortunately, they're not publicized. What gets published is people saying, oh, it's the video games, or it's the bullying on social media. But when you ask the kids, it's school. School is what's stressing them out. And we have to come to grips with that, and we have to change that. And there's two ma- there's two routes to change that I'm interested in. One is self-directed education, but I recognize that not everybody's going to be able to do that in the immediate future. It's going to be a while before that comes about. Meanwhile, most kids, and, and especially most kids in poverty, are going to be in the public schools. And we have to make those humane places once again. Peter Gray, thank you so much for your time today it's been a massive conversation you know we started with that line of your son of telling yourself and your your wife and his teachers to go to hell we moved through kind of the historical and the biological in our discussion of hunter gatherers you made the assertion that schools are prisons and i guess that's something that's kind of been a continuing theme throughout the podcast you talked about people learning different things at different times an interesting point particularly for me was how people learn really well when you take the pressure off And what we should be doing is not uh, mounting the pressure on people, but rather taking it off. We talked about democracy and and I found your answer to the question of what would you change about Sudbury Valley really interesting in terms of it's constantly changing. And what's important is having the structure there to facilitate that change in a democratic way. And we've also missed a lot that was in your book. We didn't talk in a lot of depth about play and the value of play, which was probably one of the most influential parts of your book on me. And we didn't talk as much as we could have about the benefits of mixed age play, which you kind of alluded to, but I'll include for Patreon supporters some of my own notes and some quotes from the book that kind of summarize some of those things to make that available there. But really, I think you've you've said a lot of challenging things for a lot of listeners, Peter, and you've also painted a very inspiring call to action, I think, for a lot of people in terms of addressing some of the issues that we do see in modern education. So it's been an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast today. And thanks also to you, Beth, for your insightful questions. I'll definitely put links to the Alliance for Self-Directed Educators and also Let Grow, and as well as some of the schools that you mentioned today in the show notes, should people like to explore things more. But yeah, in sum, Peter, thank you for your fantastic book and thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much. This, is, this has been a pleasure. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the eTriller podcast with Peter Gray. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. And if you'd like to help the eTriller podcast to keep on keeping on and receive my summary and thoughts on Peter's book, Free to Learn, please go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to make a small monthly contribution to support the show. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the Eat Villa podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on this episode or any other Eat Villa episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thank you for your time in listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.